Welcome back, boys and girls. We have uh, our old friend Ricardo, who's come in again. We've got some big issues I want to talk about today. How are you going? Hey, Dougal. Good to be here again. Thank you. Uh, now, Ricardo last joined us on the campaign trail for the Australian Conservatives at the New South Wales election. Um, there was no seats that uh, we got in New South Wales, or the, the only one who still has their seat is Corey, right, in, in Victoria. Um, what are the implications for the Australian Conservatives of that election result and what's happening these days? Okay. First up, it was an ignominious defeat. Uh, we got, elect, nobody got elected. Nobody. Not one. And there are plenty of reasons for that. And um, that has caused an exodus of some members. And there was a, a big exodus uh, before the election. But the implications for us are quite good. Uh, now, Corey's uh, closed down the party. As far as he's concerned, he's gone. He's now sitting as an independent. So we are a party without a name and a party without a leader. Now, that in and, in and of itself isn't a problem because we've been conducting... A, a next steps tour. We've been visiting all the various electorates around New South Wales, speaking to the members and asking them what can we do better next time and what ideas do they have for the future. And that second part of that uh, program is I've been describing our uh, three-year, three-phase plan to contest the next election because what happened was I gave myself the day off after the election, so on Sunday I slept until 7.30, which was a big sleep in for me. Then Monday morning, I was back up at five and planning the assault at the 2022 election, which is the next one. So we punched the plan out. The, uh, the membership is extremely energised um, and we're looking forward to, to coalescing as a team and as a party, getting a name, clarifying our, um, our constitution, our policies, things like that. So that's phase one. We're going to professionalise the party. Phase two... We're going to work with, cooperate with like-minded parties around the country, around the state, because everyone kept saying that uh, the right is fragmented. Well, first of all, we're not the right. Uh, we sit smack bang in the middle of what's good for Australia and Australians, and everybody else is on the periphery, and we're just straight shooters in the middle. And we're going to attract as many of those parties and as many of those voters as we can get. And um, we have to, and this might be unique in Australian politics, but we have to be so attractive that they want to come to us. We're not going to um, bend and bow and scrape and, uh, and, and pursue votes and voters. We know who we are, what we stand for, and we're going to attract them. So that's phase two. And then phase three, it's a two-year campaign. And so come 2022, we'll be out there with a new name and a new party and uh, we're going to win seats in the upper house and the low house. That's certainly our plan in New South Wales and we're going to take that national because the other states are just as in interested as, uh, as New South Wales is. I've been on the phone, Queensland, Victoria, Tasmania and WA. In fact, last night I was up till very late listening to a, uh, a WA AC member who wanted to know what we were doing and how we were going to do it. And by the end of the conversation, he was more than happy to, to stick by us. So we're looking good. That's great to hear. What can we expect? Can we expect anything from this future party besides some more electoral success? Um, are we expecting just a, a transition of name or, or what, what can we expect from a new party? Okay, that's a great question. There will be a new name and we're con currently conducting a poll for that. And we'll, the top names will then go before marketing professionals to make sure we get the right name. Let me give you an example. Now, I like the name conservative, but that's poison with the electorate because mm -hmm. they think it's something it's not. Um, now, if we could try to change that, and that's, that's one approach or might not. We might ch choose a whole new name. Either way, it'll work because beneath the name, what they're going to experience is, again, unique in Australian politics, 
Our party will be uh, consultative, transparent in its processes, and utterly democratic. And so everybody gets a, a say. It, the party won't be owned by the leader. The party won't be owned by donors. It'll be owned by the membership. And we're going to design, in this first phase, the pro professionalisation phase, we're going to design a constitution which makes sure that it cannot be penetrated by uh, sectional interests at all. It remains the members' party. Beyond that, in terms of what you're going to see, the policies will be broader and absolutely mainstream and yet something that the others are just not doing. For example, what we didn't have last time was a youth policy. We're going to have a youth policy. We didn't have a social security policy. We'll have one of those. An environmental policy, we'll have one of those. So people that are genuinely interested in, for example, getting youths uh, into employment where they can earn good money and start to become as self-reliant as possible working with business, we'll have a policy for that. Social security, making sure those that genuinely, genuinely need help don't fall through the cracks. But by the same token, those ones that are taking us for a ride, they are they're booted off the, the, uh, the public teat. Uh, an environmental policy which genuinely, genuinely looks after the environment. Because a lot of good Greens voters think that the Greens are about the environment. And we know they're not. They're about social engineering with the, the veneer of environmentalism on the outside. Well, we're going to make sure that, and I think I might have mentioned this before, but we're going to make sure that we drought-proof Queensland and New South Wales. You know, Conservatives love dams because dams means farms. We're going to make sure that uh, industry, which needs cheap power to make sure it continues to have uh, a competitive edge, uh, gets the cheap power it needs. Conservatives love coal because coal means jobs. So very, very simple mainstream policies, but broader and deeper. And then the, the voters can have a look at it and say, yep, you know what, I think I like what these guys stand for. Okay, fantastic. And should people be watching like you and your social media for updates on uh, the new party or, or how will people find out about it? Um, well, the members are, we're slowly rebuilding our database because that got shut down quite quickly. So we're re rebuilding the, the membership database. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, it'll be a bit slow because we're still putting together the communications infrastructure so we can communicate internally of the party and then externally with uh, the electorate. Mm. But uh, you can chase us on, on Facebook. Um, there are no formal or endorsed sites. There are some unofficial sites, which yeah. you, can, uh, you can chase down. Uh, look for me on Facebook. You'll see what I'm doing. But okay. give us a couple of weeks, and we'll start getting some communications infrastructure out there, and uh, the people can see how we're progressing. Now, this professionalization phase is going to go for a, a month or three, and it'll mm -hmm. take a while. So don't expect too much just yet, because we'll have a, uh, a committee a uh, constitution committee that will be putting together a, uh, a good constitution and if you want a tip on what it's going to look like go to John Ruddock's book uh, Make the Liberal Party Great Again it is a fantastic read folks get out there read it you'll love well, it well let me tell you we did um, one of our first videos actually it was an interview with John Ruddock about his book so if you go back we'll put a link to that in the description you can go check out John tell you about the book as well perfect because once you read that book you'll want to join the party just for the, just for the way it's going to run like mm. nothing else so we've got the Constitution Committee, we'll have the Policy Committee, and uh, they'll be coming up with policy uh, drafts for us to consider, and the systems, the internal systems, to make sure we run in a transparent, consultative, and democratic process. So that's for the first one to three months. So you're not going to see a lot just yet, mm -hmm. but we'll keep you informed as best we can as the progress we're making. Okay, fantastic. Um, the second thing I want to talk about is last time you left me with a signed copy of your book, Greatness Awaits You, Five Pillars of real leadership you gave us a quick rundown uh last time i've 
in the uh, interim read the book. You have read the book? I read the book. <laughs> I enjoyed good. it. I highlighted lots of different bits of it. I'm one of the people that likes to highlight the things I like. I ended up highlighting more of the book than was unhighlighted, <laughs> um, which is not a very helpful um, you know, trait to have. But no, I liked it. I particularly liked the, uh, the chapter, I think it's chapter four, about uh, how the best leaders actually bring out the power within the people that they lead rather than focusing on trying to uh, keep kind of the, their followers small so they don't get challenged. I like I like the idea of empowering the people who are underneath you and le- helping them realize the power within themselves. Mm. And that's the key. Um, if you can harness that latent skill, talent, energy of your people, it makes your job so much easier. Mm. Uh, it's not uncommon for a leader to get a rush of blood to the head and think that they are the font of all wisdom. Mm. It's too hard. Nobody can do that. I'm just sorry. You just can't do it. Your job as a leader is to create the uh, the mechanisms by which... The team knows where it's going, when it's got to be there, what it can and can't do, mm. and then give them those processes to, to release the, uh, their, their talents and skills. Because And the, the AC is a classic example, the, the conservatives. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of talent was, was ignored. And yet we had, you know, our average age of our members isn't 13, let's just put it that way. We're mature, talented and experienced and, achieve, and individuals of achievement. So just about every AC member's got real runs on the board. So if we need um, data on the real unemployment rate, for example, in fact, the other night we had a meeting and he came across and he said, right, the real unemployment rate is as follows. And he gave me chapter and verse. And it's evidence that the government is lying to us when they say the unemployment rate is. And it's not because they, they, they structure it in a way that looks good. Complete lies. So we got that. And then we had another who was, uh, de- had detailed knowledge on the manufacturing industry and had another one who was de- had detailed knowledge on chip design and manufacture and how this is a, a, a multiplier for industry. And by the way, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time, but it's utterly critical to the defense of the realm. The chip design and, um, and manufacture, we've got to design and manufacture our own chips here in Australia. And that's a real high-end business. I mean, you know, the people in that industry aren't getting paid much less than 150K and they're the low-end guys. But what, why that's critical, for example, and this is something the government won't tell you, it's almost the equivalent of uh, gunpowder versus bows and arrows. Whoever had the gunpowder had a marked strategic advantage. Well, war in the 21st century is all about chips, but you've got to design and manufacture your own because if somebody else is doing it, your defense, the defense of the realm is at risk. It's as, it's as serious as that. So once again, you know, as a party, we know that because we're going to draw every piece of expertise we can out of our members and we'll just be able to smash the opposition on just sheer weight of evidence. So that's the trick in terms of chapter four, empowering your people, get what's in their heads out and mm-hmm. into the business. That's the way you do it. You sit back and just facilitate, just just shape and allow them to, to be their best. Mm-hmm. And you'll dominate the marketplace, absolutely dominate the marketplace. It doesn't matter whether you're in business, in politics, it makes no difference, a school, your people have got great skills, that's key. Because otherwise, you're trying to be all things to all men. You end up being nothing to nobody. Mm. Well, we might have an audience with an average age of 13, uh, maybe a few years older. But what do you think the uh, what what type of message about leadership do you think um, young people can can really get around? Because most people, or at least people my age, uh, maybe slightly older, slightly younger, it's like we we're probably at least in our careers probably not going to have. Um, 
a lot of leadership positions for a while. Do you think leadership is something we should be concerned with? Uh, or, or, or what do you think uh, an approach to leadership should be for a younger person? Great question. You should be thinking about it from day one. Because being a great leader is about, about being a great person. It is really as simple as that. And it doesn't matter whether you're Chief Executive BHB Billiton or just, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, if you're a parent, you need to be the greatest possible leader because you are engaged in the single most important job you'll ever have, and that's raising a child. That's a tough gig, let me tell you. I've done some exciting things in exciting places, but the importance of that doesn't come close to being a father. And every young man out there, every young woman needs to realise that being a parent is the single most important job you will ever have because it'll live beyond you. You do a great job and you create well-balanced, intelligent, hard-working, self-reliant children, the planet thrives. You create the opposite, it collapses. So leadership applies to everybody. And people say, oh, I don't need leadership. Here you do. Everybody does. But in answer to your question, it doesn't matter how old, 13, 30 or 300. Step one, be, be worthy of people's trust. Just be trustworthy. Because um, if you're 13 or you're working your way up the, the, uh, the business ladder, they want people they can trust. Employers are not dumb. It's hard making money. It is hard creating wealth. And they need to be, have reliable people around them. So be trustworthy. Second, and that's, that's your foundation. Second, be a, be a person of good character. Be a person of good character. And there are many virtues, but I'll give you four that are fundamental and they encompass most. And the first is courage. You've got to be a, a person of courage. And that's physical courage, emotion, emotional courage, mental courage, moral courage. The ability to think, say, and do what is right. But not just know it, but to actually do it. That courage is key. Unfortunately, it's one of the rarest things in Australian society. You don't see people of courage anymore. I do a lot of talks, and I've been doing a lot of talks for a long time now, since I've been back in Oz. And invariably, people come up to me at the end of the show and say, thank you for saying what we're afraid to say. And I say thank you, and that's, you know, try to be gracious, but it terrifies me that people are afraid to speak. And I'm not saying anything libelous, slanderous, insulting, offensive. I'm just speaking the truth, and we'll do that later in, in the show. We can talk about a few issues. But without courage, we are breeding a nation um, of cowards. Yeah, well, there is um, a lady who I really love, who I really like and look up to, Ayan Hersia Lee. Uh, she she came from um, uh, like born in Somalia, came over to Holland, was in the government, um, talked about Islam and the dangers it often poses to women, um, and talks about Sharia law. And she gets. Uh, thrown down as like an Islamophobe, uh, uh, um, racist, um, kind of xenophobic. She's on the Southern Poverty Law Center's like hate person list. And she's married to probably my favorite historian whose name is Neil Ferguson. And Neil's kind of a meta historian. He loves talking about the world and like big trends and, and how things kind of came around. Um, and he says that um, he asked, why, why does your wife get treated so poorly when she's obviously a very kind-hearted person and is just trying to speak the mm. truth? Um, and he said, people actually kind of know what's true and what's not, but let me tell you that cowardice is the greatest force uh, in human history um, in terms of what has shaped the events that have led us up to now. So I think at least you're in agreement with, with him. I'll tell you what. The, 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 um, the solution to this, and it, it'll take a while to get there, but the moment every person out there in Australia realises that the political class 
is they're funded by their dollars. Now, the political class aren't special. I've met them. I think I said it before that you wouldn't invite them around for dinner. They're just not good people. They're just, they're not bad people. They just, you just don't want to be having anything to do with them. But when everybody out there, I mean, every single one of them realizes that without their vote and their money, the political class ceases to be. It's just as important as that. Uh, the barmaid um, who spoke to me and said, I'm just a barmaid. And I said, no. Scott Morrison's power comes from your vote and your money. If you withhold your vote and your money, he goes back to being a spin doctor in some suburban PR outfit. Because that's all he is. And this young girl's eyes widened. And she'd never heard words like that. You have the power, young lady, to control government. Now... Here's a show I love to watch. I'm nearly 60, but I still love the story in this show, A Bug's Life. Watch A Bug's Life, but watch it at the very end, where all of a sudden the ants realize that they have the power and the grasshoppers don't. Now, the grasshoppers are intimidating and they can kill, and that's true. And you can expect a few casualties over the next three, four election cycles. But the moment the Australian population links arms and says, no, you don't, Canberra, not anymore, we're withholding our vote and our money, and we're going to put people in Canberra that put Australia and Australians first, and the rest of you can go to hell. You watch these other parties evaporate. It's a great story. So if you've got a younger audience or even an older audience, it makes no difference. Go get a bug's life. Watch it through the eyes of a country that needs to take itself back. And that last scene, it's breathtaking and it's inspiring. Okay, fantastic. I'll put a link to that in the description if you want to go check out a bug's life. Watch it with your girlfriend. Stop watching uh, whatever else is on Netflix these days and go catch a bug's life. Um, I tell you what, it, it might end up making your day. Um, now, the, the next thing I want to talk about, it's been talked about a lot, but uh, it's probably got a few issues that, that are going to be important to us and important for probably the party going forward in whatever, mm. whatever um, form it comes in. Um, and it's Israel Folau uh, and his treatment and what should be done, what should... Uh, and there's yeah, there's I guess there's a few issues which which are all kind of intertwined here. Um, people talk about religious freedom, uh, freedom of speech. Then like maybe should the ARU be allowed to do whatever it wants? Is there discrimination? Is there consistency? Um, but why don't you give us your take and why you think it's it's such an important story? I think this is fantastic. You you couldn't have scripted this any better. In fact, there's a good segue from a bug's life to this, because as we know. Israel tweeted a paraphrase of a Bible verse. Um, the, uh, the ARU threatened him, offered him money, um, and he lost his job. And it's going through the courts. Now, I'm not going to speak to the merits of the case because I don't have access to all that information. But what I find amusing is this. Point one, if the, if the uh, Australian Rugby Union just said nothing, it would have died. Nobody would have cared. But... It's been alleged that Alan Joyce, chief executive of Qantas, might have influenced Rugby Australia's uh, decision. Now, he has denied that, and that should be said. He has denied he has influenced Rugby Australia. But having said that, I don't believe Alan Joyce. I just don't trust him because something stinks. Now, what's funny about it is Falau goes out and gets a, a GoFundMe page, and within a day and a bit, he's got, I don't know, three quarters of a million bucks. GoFundMe pulls the plug. Mm. In less than 48 hours, it's over double that much to two million. I'm not even sure what it is now. It's probably well over $2 million. What that tells me is this. 
that some Australians could see the free speech angle in this and the Christians shouldn't be beaten. But the moment they pulled the plug, they realised what was going on. The grasshoppers were trying to crush the ants again. And so what happened was, the ants have said, hang on a minute, I don't like Falao and I don't like his religion, but if they're going to crush his rights, what about my rights? And all of a sudden they're starting to realise that the old story, I, I didn't speak up about these people, and then I didn't speak up about these people, and eventually they came for me and there was nobody to speak up for me. I think Australians are starting to link arms and turn on the grasshoppers and say, no, you don't. Now, here's one last point, a bit of a plug for the party. Uh, no political party is speaking on this except we, the Australian Conservatives, because we know exactly what's at stake here. And it's not a religious issue. It's got nothing to do with that. This is freedom of speech. And if you can't speak, you lose everything. Because I've lived and worked in countries that are police states where you say the wrong thing, you just disappear in the desert and don't come back. And I'm not suggesting that's going to happen here, but it's going to be far more subtle. But the Conservatives are the only ones speaking up on the free speech issue. We did so well early in the piece and we're still doing it now. Silent Scott Morrison, our Prime Minister. What did he say? Isn't this just revealing? I think this issue has had enough oxygen. Now, can you imagine the leader, as was recently put to me by a good friend of mine, the leader of the free world saying, oh, well, you know, that's enough free speech. Ladies and gentlemen of Australia, you're going to find out that Scott Morrison believes in nothing. And he's just shown his hand. Silent Scott. He wants to say nothing about this because, well, I can't imagine why. Mm. But it's a good story, and I think it's a good... It augurs well mm. for Australia. Mm. Now, would you make uh, a distinct... Like, so we talk about free speech. Free speech is as far as... <clears throat> like, my, my idea of free speech is that you should be able to say basically whatever you want, maybe... Um, incitements to violence is 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 an exception and and you shouldn't go to jail right the government shouldn't come after you but if i say something which is particularly um disliked by let's say my employer do you think you should have the right to keep your job or not that's a great question the um let's just touch on the incitement to violence thing because what falau said didn't incite anybody to violence he was just mm. expressing a belief as opposed to uh, behead all those that insult the prophet mm. Now, that gets, a, that gets a pass from everybody, including Silent Scott Morrison and, and Albanese. They say nothing about the Islamic threats to behead people. They get a pass. Why is that? So it's selective free speech, point number one. ABC, they're selective about free speech because mm. they'll support somebody but not somebody else. So don't be confused. Don't believe that they're defending a point of principle. They're not. They're protecting their own backsides. That's point number one. They're deceptive. They're lying to you. They really are. Now, back to your question. The, uh, should uh, an employer have the right to impact upon your free speech? Well, obviously, yes, to a degree. Because if you bring the organization's uh, reputation into disrepute, then that's unacceptable because an organization, uh, its future is almost entirely dependent on its reputation. Mm. But this was not of that sort. This was a privately held belief. Everybody understood it was a privately held belief. And away you go. Because if a corporation can control every aspect of your life, you've gone back to medieval times where you're a serf, mm. where your entire life and livelihood is now dependent on the Lord and Master. Well, that's un completely unacceptable. So there's an intelligent debate to be had about this. Yes, an employee cannot destroy the reputation of the, the organization for whom he or she works. But by the same token, it cannot be so draconian that we now must sit quietly in our cubicles, meekly filling our work assignments out and not having the ability to say what we want. Because if a company is rotten, then we ought to hit them where it hurts and say, you know what, this company's bad. 
don't buy their product because they love using their corporate power on us. Mm. And we have the same. Once again, the ants can link arms and say to any company that's doing strange things, mm. inexplicably supporting halal, for example. Mm. Why are you supporting halal and not supporting Christmas? Why are you putting happy uh, Ramadan Karim, which is happy Ramadan, up mm. in your shops, but you won't put up happy Easter? Sure. Well, let me, let me put this hypothetical to you. Sure. Let's say we had Sonny Bill Williams, a Muslim, in, let's say he was playing in the NRL or something. Yeah. He puts up on his Instagram a, like a Quran verse um, which says like a wife must submit to her husband, mm. something like this, right? And NRL doesn't like it. NRL says you can't play anymore. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, do you think... Do you think I don't think the NRL would do that. But anyway, go on. Well, the NRL has said that they're not going to have Falau. They're not going to accept Falau back in, yeah. right? So I'm asking you, would would you take the same principled approach uh, to defend uh, like a Muslim if they found themselves in a similar situation? Or is this like particular to Christianity? Okay, we're going to get in a really sensitive area here and I'm happy to wade in boots and all. Okay, freedom of religion. Is Islam a religion? That's a really good question because it's part religion and part uh, world conquest ideology. Now, 91 times in the Quran, uh, Muslims are told to kill the Kafir, and the Kafir are non-Muslims. I can't remember Jesus saying that. So we get to choose what is a religion and what's not. Because if someone turns up and says, you know, I have a religion and I have to kill dogs on a Sunday on my front step, and that's what my religion says, we just reject it out of hand because it's nonsense. Well, if you look into Islam, it's got a, it's a pretty terrible history. 1,400 years this place has been running, Islam. 1,400 years, unbroken. The Caliphate, which started with Muhammad in 635, ended in 1924. And I bet you your, your, your listeners don't know that. And it ended with the Ottoman Empire when uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk decided to turn Turkey, which was the remnants of the Ottoman Empire, into a secular, secular country. So the real question is, Islam a religion? Because freedom of speech, up to a point, I'm a, I'm a freedom of speech uh, extremist. But having people say, I'm going to kill you, is different to saying, you're going to go to hell. One's a belief about a future life. This is what I'm going to do to you right now. So there is no moral equivalency between Christianity and Islam. And I'm happy to take anybody on here. And we can, we can, I'll give you a chapter and verse. In fact, it's called the Surah in the Quran. It's not called chapter and verse in the Bible. It's called the Surah. And I'll go Surah for Surah with anybody to explain to you why there is no moral equivalency between Islam and Christianity. Okay. What would you be willing to say about, if we're just doing a, an analysis of the text, what would you say about uh, Judaism and the Torah? That's in historical context. That's 2,000 years old. The context... Well, 1,400 the, years old, 2,000. Not a huge difference. Yeah, but the thinking's medieval. It's huge. The difference. See, there's a difference between the, the Bible and the Quran. The Bible has a, an historical context because it's chronological. But the Quran isn't. The Quran has been rearranged. The, the, the surahs have been rearranged to be to go according to length. So there's no logical sequence to it. Mm -hmm. It's nonsense. It's designed to be indecipherable. It's in designed to be difficult to understand. Do you understand? I guess I have significant reservation about one group of people deciding uh, whether a different group of people's beliefs cannot or can be determined as a religion and then having a bunch of policy prescriptions that come from that, right? So I'd say there's probably quite a lot of people, even in Canberra, which wouldn't, 
Well, well, let's say just in general, right? Mm. There's quite mm. a lot of people who would kind of believe Christianity uh, it, it doesn't hold an iota of truth in it, right? Mm. Now, I don't think we'd like them deciding that Christianity is, is not a religion. Mm. I think that's dangerous. Don't you think we should, like, I, I, I'm finding it hard to mm. uh, understand where you're coming from a little bit, but... Um, that's okay. Let me get that one for yeah. you. Because you've, you've really nailed on a deep point here, which will take a while to get through. And it's worthy of a discussion in and of its own right. But first of all, this. Just so you know where I'm coming from when I speak of Islam, I've lived and worked in Middle Eastern countries for years and years and years. Many of them. So I have a lived experience of this. This isn't just some uh, idea that I have. I've lived and worked with these people backwards. Mm. And I can, and we can, we'll do a section on, on Islam one day if you want. So it's a lived experience. Point number two. And this is great because people speak as if there is some uh, pure ideology to which we must hold ourselves. Now, that only exists in one place. Now, the word, we have a right to do this, and they have a right to practice their religion. We have a right to, to free speech. We have a right to... Here's the question that every listener has to come up and answer to themselves. What is the origin of that right? Now think about that for a minute. What's, what's the origin of that right? Is it because a bunch of people agreed? Well, that's just the mob. That's, that's the mob rule. Let's, let's say, theoretically, 25 million Australians decide we have the right to, um, to set the laws as we choose, and the laws include no um, uh, polygamy. Right? No problem. We open up the borders, and 26 million Indonesians wander down and fill the country. And 26 million Muslims then turn around and say, well, we decide that we have a right to polygamy. See, you have to work out for yourself where your rights come from. What's the origin of the right? Because if it's just mob rule, that's not a right. That's an opinion. And this word is thrown around. It's bandied around. And I understand your discomfort. And you should feel discomfort because you and everybody else has to make a decision in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. We have either we choose how this country is shaped or somebody else will. And you can use the excuse, well, it's a human right, as determined by whom? The UN? Okay, let me tell you about the UN. The largest voting bloc in the United Nations is called the, is called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. 57 Muslim states run the UN. Now, do you think for a minute that human rights, and they love that expression, that human rights matter? Well, they don't, because the OIC... Uh, signed up to what's called the Cairo Declaration. If you want to look this one up, chapters 20, uh, paragraphs 24 and 25, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is subject to Sharia law. Gosh. Now, what does that tell you? What it means is the UN is run by the Muslims and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we are, we are uh, required to adhere to, lest we be um, uh, torn down by the UN, the Muslim countries don't because it is subject to Sharia law. So you're applying a level of um, a, a, a stricture on us that they're not playing by the same rules. So you can't say, well, how, who are we to say that Islam's not a religion? I am me. I have the authority vested in me by my right. What right's that? The one I say I've got because you say you've got a right, so do I. Let's fight it out and see who wins. But if you want to be... And that's a personal decision you're going to have to come up with. I've got my answer where the rights come from, but everyone has to make up their own mind. But the, but the Islamists and the, and the Muslims are playing by one set of rules and compelling us to play by another. And our cowardly and treasonous politicians either don't know or they do know, but they're forcing us to play by the same rules. So I have every right to say Islam's not a religion. It's about 5% religion, maybe. The five pillars of, real, of, uh, of Islam. 
you know, zakat, the hajj, you know, this is, you know, giving charity or doing the hajj or whatever it is. You can do that, but let me tell you where that came from. First 12 years of Muhammad's uh, preaching, he was in Mecca. And after 12 years, he had something like 150 followers. No great shakes. His own family thought he was a fool. He got jack of that, to use an Australian expression. And he went to Medina where he pulled out a sword and said, convert or die. And all of a sudden, he had the world's most popular religion, which was based on uh, raiding caravans and killing the Kaffir and taking their gold and buying slaves. That's the origin of this great religion. This great religion is responsible for 120 million deaths or something, some ridiculous number, insane number. 80 million Hindus. 80 million Hindus died in India. Afghanistan used to be Buddhist. This is not a religion. This is a death cult. Now, I'm not talking about Muslims. I'm talking about Islam. So I have every right to say, based on my experience and my knowledge of the religion, it's not a religion. It's something else. So Sonny Bill and Israel Folau, false equivalency. I'm really sorry, Dougal, but it is a false equivalency. Telling me that he's going to cut off my daughter's head because she doesn't believe she insults the prophet. Mm. That's different to saying to a grown man, you shouldn't you shouldn't drink and smoke sure, and carry sure, on. Sure. In the, the question though, if if Sonny Bill Williams said mm. a wife must submit to her husband, right? Mm. We would say that today is probably unacceptable um, as a social thing. I think most people would say that. Some people might disagree. Um, but if the NRL or, or some rugby organisation was to take action on that, I'd be like, you can do your thing. In the same way to the ARU, I'd say about Falau, you can do your thing. That's my natural position on it. Mm. Um, which, and, and that's not like a, a religious thing. That's, that's as far as I can tell, that's a, that's a privacy thing. Understood. Um, do you have, like, what, what's, your reaction, what's your reaction to that? They should leave them both alone. If it wasn't the Islam thing, I think that's you know, a man, a woman should submit to her husband. If he wants to say that, fill your boots. Mm. I have no problem. It's the Islam thing that's the problem. See, we, we've got two people, allegedly, you know, one will say one thing, one says the other. I might find them both offensive. I might find them both utterly acceptable. Mm. But that hasn't brought the organization into disrepute. That brings his own reputation potentially introduced in, into disrepute or it enhances it either way. But the organization isn't affected by it, to my mind, at all. So if he wants to say that, if, if someone says, you know, I want to kill the Kaffir, you might want to start having a think about it, not because it's a religious thing, because it's just violence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, separate the religion aspect to it. If they say things that are unpleasant, they can wear that. But to conflate the religious aspect to it is the problem, because Christianity always gets it in the gonads, and Islam always gets a pass. So they're trying to conflate two false issues here you got got to see where i'm going with this thing so the statement is one thing and the other statement is another thing and that has that can be judged in its own merits but to cloak the christianity one is one that needs to be beaten up and the other one potentially i bet you they wouldn't say a thing about islam ever Mm. i mean act has what's they have uh the laws uh anti-religious vilification laws that sounds very good you can't vilify somebody define that for me it's like hate but you can't vilify somebody based on their religion, okay? What people don't realize, the next step is blasphemy. And we've had our head of ASIO, Duncan Lewis, actually say, well, you know, blasphemy, I, I'm not going to pass comment on, 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 on religions because that's blasphemy. Are you kidding me? Blasphemy laws, Australia, 21st century? Mm. Please. It's this creeping advance that's the problem. But mm. again, 
just get back to your point. If they want to say things that are unpleasant and the impact on its employer, that should be looked at at its own merits. Just don't wrap it up in the Christian um, Islamic issue because that is a whole different ballgame. And that's why I went into quite some detail about the nature of Islam because yeah. there is no moral equivalency between Islam and Christianity. You know, the carpenter's son was a shepherd. The other bloke mm-hmm. was a warlord. Mm-hmm. Well, would you defend uh, the Old Testament? In what way? Well, <clears throat> the New Testament, as far as I'm aware, is quite a bit nicer than the Old Testament in a range of ways. <laughs> um, but the proposition put forward by the by the Christians is that it's it's the same God. Yeah, it's the same God. Yeah. Uh, so, would you be willing to defend um, the Old Testament in oh, the same see, way you defend? I see what you're getting to. Okay, right. Uh, I can't see bands of marauding Jews killing people around the planet at the moment. We don't have a terror problem based on uh, Old Testament that the Jews are executing against the planet. Sure. We do with Islam. So context is everything. We can have a group of people that believe anything, but if it doesn't impact on us, it's no big deal. That's that's free speech. You know, Believe what you want to believe, say what you want to say. Does it impact on us? Not really. Hmm. Sure. But if you've got somebody, as you said it yourself, incitement to violence, because that's all the Quran is, sure. 91 times... Well, let's, uh, let's, I think that's a nice segue because one, one person who might be regarded as the most blasphemous person over the past decade would be Julian Assange. Um, very blasphemous if you're a, uh, if you're a uh, what, what are they, the NSA or the CIA or the FBI? Hmm. Um, you've, you've gone right against the, the uh, I don't know what Bible they have, the, uh, the globalist Bible maybe, the, uh, the lizard Bible, um, whichever Bible it is. Um, so I think he's... Um, He's not doing very well, Julian. I think he's in a British prison right now. Um, we we had a brief. I, I shot it at you. You said Julian was a hero. Is absolutely. that still your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Why don't you Why don't you give us your thoughts? And also, why don't you tell us? Um, why don't you give us a bit about the mili- the military angle? Because the the thing that's most often thrown against Julian is that he put like military lives in danger. Um, how do you respond to that and still uh, and reconcile that with your your love for Julian? Sure. First thing we have to understand, there is no stasis. There's no stability in this. Life is, is a push and shove. It's a constant push and shove. Okay? And so you've got the absolute need for national security secrets to remain secret. But then occasionally you need the absolute ability for somebody to come out and go, this is rotten. This is really rotten. Now, how you deal with it is very, it requires delicacy because the guy that says something, lets something out of the cat out of the bag has to be held to account. But in such a way that if he has done the wrong thing the wrong way for the wrong reasons, oh, he's a spy and he wants to, he wants to um, uh, dismantle the, uh, the, the covert network in another country, then he should be locked up for good. But if he's actually released information, the right information the right way for the right reasons because the country is being sold out, then he still has to go through the legal processes. He doesn't get a pass. As I said on TV recently, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. This requires you know, a big set of onions, let's say, to do this. And Julian's got the biggest set out there because he didn't do it for profit. He didn't do it for any reason other than you should know what's being done in your name. So like Trump, he's a, he's a, he's a global hero that in, 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 you know, in future history, they'll be writing about these two heroes called Trump and Assange. Now that there is pain to go through along the way because the moment he was accused of putting um, operatives at risk, I sort of went, my instinct was, yeah, that's not good. But then you look at who's saying it. It's all the people that were being revealed by what he said. So all those characters in the US, the deep state that we all know about, they were the ones that were put at risk. And they were the, 
they, they were making the allegations and that's why they wanted him shut down because he was giving away stuff for free. He wasn't making money on this. He just wanted us to know what was being done in our name. And I can t- guarantee you there's a bunch going on in Australia that if Australians knew what was being done in their name, they'd be happy to, to look after an Assange-type character as well. But once again, it's this push and shove. If you release the information, you better have done it the right way and for the right reasons, and you'll eventually be exonerated. There will be pain for you. Mm. That's got to happen because we've got to put them through the ringer to make sure that we weren't compromised by spies. Yet on the other hand, we've got, what, the Chinese um, <laughs> the Chinese company Huawei, Huawei, who are you, you know, putting chips in our security systems in Canberra. And nobody said boo. Mm. You know, no, he's a, he's a hero, but he's got to go through the ringer, and that's the mm. price you pay for doing something heroic. It, mm. There is nothing but pain. Okay. A few of the things he released. One uh, was a video called Collateral Murder, which had an Apache helicopter killing some uh, civilians, including uh, a couple of journalists. There was also in the Iraq war logs um, records of, I think, 66,000 civilians civilian deaths, which is way more than what had been uh, reported before. And also uh, the recording of, I think, like 700 deaths of civilians going through just checkpoints, checkpoints in the Middle East. Um, do you think that should have any broader uh, policy implications for, uh, or, or do you think that says anything about Western um, uh, armies in the Middle East? Um, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the exact uh, examples you cite, but for the purpose of argument, let's say that were um, allied armies that were responsible for those mm-hmm. deaths. If that is true, then the individuals that did it need to be held to account. And the second lesson is we need to fight better and smarter. Now, fortunately, in the old, you know, the old days were pretty rudimentary. He doesn't look right, blows head off, no problem. We have the capacity to put up drones with facial recognitions, confirm the exact identity of the target, and if we need to, we take them out. So there are technical solutions to blunt force trauma that used to be applied. We just have to fight a whole lot smarter because now you can have, um, you know, <laughs> there were <laughs> when I was running uh, capability development for special ops, future warfare stuff, this is going back 21 years now, I said to my guys, there are three themes that we need to uh, adopt and adapt and understand, and they were war is crime, which means there is evidence, there are, there are, there are fingerprints we need to take to make sure we got the right guy, the right guy shot the right person for the right reasons, so we have to adapt to that. That was the first one. The second one was war is entertainment, meaning not that it's entertaining, but the public now gets to see this every night on their TV. So we better fight in a way that when the public sees what we've done, they go, yeah, that's all right. I've got no problem with that. Now, there will all be collateral damage. There always will be. That's, that is war. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's dirty and it's, it's inaccurate. But we have to be able to put it up on screen and say, this is what we've done and this is why we've done it. And the third theme that I picked up, and this is 21 years ago, was war is business. We've got to understand that too. There are a lot of people making money out there and we don't go to war for the right reasons. And we've got to make sure that we're not on that end of the stick. So yeah, there's a lot to learn from this. We have to grow and adapt and grow and adapt and keep on growing and adapting to do this right. But to think that um, Assange did something wrong because he revealed that, absolutely not. Now we don't fund murder. Now things go pear shape things go nasty out there but one guy squeezing the trigger accidentally against the wrong targets one thing the systematic and intentional um destruction of civilians is not part of what we're about now, other armies fight that way but we shouldn't be fighting that way mm. okay cool and uh i don't know what the australian government could do 
Uh, but it definitely they could do a lot more than what they're doing now. It seems to be a whole lot of nothing. Um, what 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 conceivable what conceivable political action could a government do to help Julian? Do you know from because like an Australian citizen, right? It's almost like they don't want to. Um, they were silent on Assange for years when they should have spoken out, but we now know why. We can well, we don't know. We suspect why. Didn't they? He got he got a journal. It's, it's some type of prize in like two thousand. Uh, I think got like a Booker Prize or something when when he was exposing stuff about Bush. But then when he started exposing stuff about Obama and Clinton, then then we kind of dropped. Well, the there's your answer to your own question. Yeah, the Australian government. Um, Oh, how do I put this? You've heard about the deep state in the US? Oh, we talk about the deep state about 50 times well, in every don't, podcast. Don't think, don't think that they don't, that deep state doesn't have its hooks in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, I can, I'm going to be careful when I say it's slanderous and libelous or whatever the hell. But just understand that the deep state has its hooks in Australia. And if whenever you look at the Australian government and you say, why are they doing something about it? It's not because it hasn't occurred to them. Blind Freddy can see what you've got to do. I mean, they, they went to more trouble to get Chappelle Corby assistance than they did Julian Assange. Now, why is that? Now, you've got to suspect that maybe, maybe it wasn't in their interest to, to help him because maybe he had dirt on a whole bunch of people. Now, I'm sure that the, uh, what was released about the US, it'd be lovely if 8chan or 4chan or somebody else or WikiLeaks put out some dirt on Australia and Australian population could see exactly what their politicians are made of. Because, you know, hopefully they'll retire for health and family reasons mm. and then we can get some decent people into parliament. Mm. But there's a... They well, knew. That sounds good. And um, I think there's a chance we could uh, we could have some future collaboration talking about the deep state. And I think that's a project we might be able to work on. Um, let's finish off. Let's finish up on this issue, which I don't know if the Conservatives have talked a lot about it or this new party. I don't know if it's going to make it into the, uh, the party policy, maybe a, an environmental policy or a, uh, or, or a social policy, but I want to talk about uh, drug legalisation, particularly marijuana, legalisation slash decriminalisation. Mm. Um, I guess first question is, do you have a perspective on the war on drugs? Yeah, that's a good one because there are two very almost antithetical sides to this. One side says you can't have it, it's, it's bad, shut it down. The other side says legalise it, tax it and control it. And I can see the merit in both because I have a big, despite my background, I have a very big libertarian streak in me that's, that says leave me alone to do what I want to do with my body. It's, I'm entirely responsible and I'm absolutely sympathetic with that. The trouble is a lot of lunatics out there, we end up, we end up picking up the bill for their libertarian beliefs. Because you know we are our brother's keeper, and we do look after, and as we should, we should look after those that stumble, fall, and and, and can't make it on their own. But I'd give every every person out there the same advice I'd give my kids, and it's twofold. One, there are, there are really important things to worry about, and this isn't one of them. There are serious issues to worry about, and it's not a matter of not being able to chew gun and gum and walk at the same time. It's just that this is such a peripheral issue. It's not a a libertarian issue of note for me. There are bigger ones. And that's an opinion you can accept or reject that. But here's, here's a more personal one. I want you to imagine a brand new Ferrari. And I love Ferraris. They're just art on wheels. Now think of the most, and you can flick a picture of a nice Ferrari up on the screen when you edit this. Um, and flip open the, the hood or, and you can see the engine. And it's just engineering brilliance. And you hear the purr as, as it revs up. 
Now imagine someone gave you for nothing a brand new Ferrari. It's yours. It's sitting out the front. And the first thing you do is got a handful of sugar and you threw it in the fuel tank. Mm. Why would you do that? Mm. You wouldn't. The Ferrari is not designed to have sugar in the fuel tank. It's designed to have top grade fuel. You damage the thing. And let's say it coughs and splutters a bit. And, you know, it's funny to watch the, this magnificent Ferrari cough and splutter a bit. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't get a 20 cent piece and run it down the side of the bodywork. You wouldn't get a can of beer and pour it over the leather seats. You wouldn't upend a rubbish bin in the back seat. You'd take care of it because it's magnificent. It's worthy of being taken care of. Now, everyone out there has this body, this thing, this vessel with which we go through life. Now, you can treat it well or you can treat it poorly. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching because I'm a saint. I'm not. <laughs> I've lived a very unsaintly life. I can tell you, I smoked for nearly 30 years. And that's insane when you add up how much I spent on cigarettes. And then when you add up the interest rate I could have saved, I'd be a billionaire man just, just on the money I spent on smokes. What a jerk I am. But the point is this. You've got this magnificent body. And marijuana does nothing good to it. Just like tobacco does nothing good to it. Now, it feels great to smoke. I love smoking. Drinking drinking's great. That's why it's so popular. But doesn't necessarily in excess the drinking, but the marijuana and the tobacco just does you no good. Why would you do that to your body? This thing is designed to perform at elite levels. It is capable of the most amazing physical feats. And if this is in good shape, then this is in good shape. And if this is in good, good shape, the world is yours. Mm. Um, it's just dumb. It is just dumb. Don't, don't do it because it's, it hurts you. It just hurts you. Um, it hurts society down the track. It's a gateway drug. I mean, all these arguments, you know, you can fight whether it's true or not. The fact is, when I was in Afghanistan, you know, and we'll do, we'll do, do one on Afghanistan. I'll show you. I'll bring some pictures and you can put them up. I'm sitting up on the, uh, one of the watchtowers and I was taking a film for the reconnaissance report I had to write. And there was the, uh, the green zone is where the rivers flow. The rest is just beige desert. It's, it's a mm. brutal place. And there were some paddocks, and there was corn, corn, marijuana, corn, corn. Mm. And I looked at that, and I thought to myself, now, why is Ahmed growing our marijuana? Because he gets more for the marijuana than he gets for the corn. And his kids aren't going to smoke it. So do I blame Ahmed for growing marijuana or the guy next door growing poppies? No, because they're not so stupid as to put this stuff into their system. We are. I just rather the, that everybody, male, female, old and young, realizes that there's a better way to do things. There's always a best way to do everything. Mm. Everything. There's a best way to do it. Well, I think, I, I, look, I, there, there's quite a lot in that that I, I would find, <laughs> I would naturally sympathize with. Um, I'd like to raise a couple of points. Sure. Firstly, I would say life is short and you should have fun sometimes uh, responsibly. Um, you know, if, if, that's, if that's what you're into, but... Uh, the, the first point I'd like to raise is like, what I'm concerned about is is whether it's illegal or not, not, yeah. not whether it's right or wrong to do. Sure. Because when something is illegal, that means the police can come and arrest you and take you to the police station yeah. and, and write you up, right? And so I basically think that under no circumstances is it appropriate for you to be smoking a joint or, or uh, you know, whether it's in the park or, or whether it's with your buddies watching Lord of the Rings and get taken down to the station for a write-up, right? I just don't think that crime fits fits the punishment. Yeah. Um, I also think that there are way more dangerous things that, that we're happy to trust people with, right? Mm. 
I would say, for example, like you love playing rugby or you used to love playing rugby. I reckon rugby, like, is probably much more damaging for the average Australian's brain than probably recre- a recreational marijuana habit is. And I'd also say that, like, alcohol is pro- is way more dangerous. Mm. Like, nobody actually dies from um, marijuana. You can eventually die from, like, you, like lung-related stuff. But, like, you can walk into a bottle shop, get a bottle of whiskey, drink it, and in, you know, a few minutes you'll be dead. Um, at the same time, if you, if you go and smoke too much marijuana, you'll be asleep on your couch. Um, <laughs> like, I, I just think that it, it shouldn't be illegal. And, I mean, we... Like when it gets talked about as an issue on the periphery, I get that it's not like a, it's not an issue that's going to make a difference in a mm. lot of people's lives. Except, um, I'm I'm going to give you a few statistics from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Yeah. Right. Um, in um, twenty, uh, sorry, yeah, in twenty fifteen sixteen, in Australia, there were seventy nine uh, marijuana. 79,000 marijuana arrests. Mm. Now, 72,000 of those were from arrested consumers. Mm. 7,000 were arrested producers, right? So I'm thinking, let's say I have a little bit of marijuana with me or someone else has a little bit of marijuana. They Mm. go and get arrested, go through a criminal process. I'm kind of like, what's going on there? And I feel like they should kind of be trusted with their own lives. Mm. I feel like there are a lot of... um, like high-performing people who have a recreational marijuana habit. Mm. I mean, the average age of marijuana, according of uh, marijuana smokers, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, is 34. Mm. Right, so they're often adults. Um, and I just think we shouldn't be throwing all these people in jail. Not, or, and not, not to mention the fact that it, you know we could be making a lot of money off it. Mm. Um, we could be making it safer and. We're probably putting a few drug lords out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's kind of my reaction. Yeah, no, and I, I understand. I have great sympathy for every one of those arguments. I absolutely do. Look at it this way: here's what's uh, here's a range of drugs, mm-hmm. and we've got tobacco and alcohol, and then we have this arbitrary line that says nothing, nothing, nothing to the right of that line. Okay, mm-hmm. we've got this stuff now. To use your own stats, how much damage and cost to the community is alcohol and tobacco? Oh, alcohol's number one. It's huge. Massive cost to the community, right? Mm. But we've tried prohibition, doesn't work, because once something's in, you can't back it out anymore. Mm. And so, for historical reasons, it stopped at alcohol, tobacco. And tobacco, massive cost to tobacco. Vaping, vaping should be in. Mm. Absolutely, but they won't because of, you know, the big tobacco companies won't let vaping mm. in, but vaping's a good alternative to tobacco smoking, right? Mm. But we've got this arbitrary line, and that's what we've got to come back to this, what, what's right and what's wrong. We have to learn to make up our own mind, because it didn't come down from God in tablets of stone. That's why we're here. Now, if we go with the marijuana, why not go with, or I don't know, ice? And why not go with it, and why not go with See if there's, at some point, we have to make an arbitrary decision. And the one thing I'd say is I'm not morally and, you know, objectively correct. I'm just saying this is where I think the line should be. What you're saying is you think the line should be here to include marijuana, and I presume you'd say, Ice is going too far, but the same arguments you use for marijuana is the same for ice. Yeah. It's my body, let me do what I like. Mm-hmm. And again, <laughs> you want to write yourself off, go for it. Yeah, mm. Got it. So once again, and it comes back to this fundamental issue of what we think a right is. What we need to understand is we get to choose our laws. And we're not going to say I'm morally superior to you, it's not about that. It's just a what world do I want to live in? And each and every one of us needs to grow up, all of us and say, I think that the line should be here, and I think that the line should be there. And we discuss it intelligently, 
and then on the balance of, of, of evidence, we can say, well, I think the line can shift here, but that's too far, but that's not far enough, right? Mm. And so we can have that discussion. So there's no moral, I'm not certainly not giving anybody a moral imperative, I'm just saying, mm. we get to choose what this country is like. All of us, every one of us gets to choose it. Now you might be right on the, on the marijuana thing, I might be wrong. If 95% of the country said, you know, legalize marijuana, I go, great, legalize, legalize it. This is democracy, mm. I'm happy with that. But I just still have my mm. point that a country that smokes dope is not gonna be as good as a country that doesn't. It's like a country that doesn't drink itself to death, but you, know, you can't undo something once it is done. That's why we're stuck with what mm. it is. Um, so it's not a moral issue, it's just what's best, what works best. Mm. And we have to figure out what works best. Sure. And I think so. We we have a line that we have a line there in law. Mm. Um, it would seem to me we don't have any such line in the street. Insofar as you could, if 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 a person doesn't know where to get drugs, they definitely know someone who knows someone where to get drugs. I don't. I wouldn't have a clue. Don't ask me. Um, well, don't ask me either. Um, <laughs> well. Um, and and what I'm saying is like there's there's def if you go to these public there's definitely kids on the year six playground right who's who sell a little bit of dope here and there um, if there's definitely some on the high school playgrounds um, and it's like we we have we have a legal line there but we don't have a supply cutoff right the supply of the drugs is there uh, for those who want them. Um, and as far as I can tell, if, we're, if, if the question is what works best, I mean, Alan Jones has come out in just the past couple of days and said he wants to look into drug decriminalisation because uh, all, everything we've tried so far just hasn't worked. Uh, except for one, sorry to jump in on you, but except one reason why it hasn't worked is the politicians. That's your problem. It's not the coppers, it's not the law, it's the politicians that allow this stuff to happen. You've got to understand it. This, this cannot, this war, the war on drugs can't be won because the police don't want it won. They genuinely don't, as a group. There might be individuals that do, and they'll be terribly offended. How do you suggest they don't want the pay of, of, of criminals? Give me a break. It's the politicians. Once again, it comes back to the politicians, which comes back to leadership, which is why I bang on about it. it this war can be won. And here's the thing. Your perspective, I've always had this perspective, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty lucky, I guess. But you have a couple of kids, and I can tell you, if anybody puts a, a, dope in, a, a joint anywhere near my kids, I might have a less measured response, say, than a policeman. How dare you smash my child up? What do you do to my kid? I'll do to you tenfold and just, you know, not you, but... Hypothetical me. Oh, be, beware the bear. Because mm -hmm. there's a difference when you're a parent. There's an old adage in the military. Subbies shouldn't, captains can, majors must. Subbies, meaning lieutenants, shouldn't get married. Captains can, majors must. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ancient wisdom in that. Because you want your young fighters to be you know, 10 foot tall and bulletproof. But when you get to be a major, you want, to, you want them to be a little more measured in, in, in the sacrifice of human life. And getting married and having kids does that to you. And that's just normal. There's nothing, there's no, that's not a flash of inspiration. This is quite normal stuff. Mm. Um, you understand differently because all of a sudden you've got a young life that you're responsible for and you're, you're acutely aware of every threat to that child. Mm. And the country that uh, smokes itself to death with mm. dope, forget it. Well, do you really think that smoking itself to death with dope is a real option? I mean, it's, it's legalised in quite a lot of places in like a lot of states in America. Uh, Canada's legalised it. Mm. I mean, I think the bigger threat <clears throat> um, to, to kids is um is not actually the, the the smoking of the dope. So I think a lot of kids have their heads screwed on properly, and if they want to experiment, they'll 
often experiment without mucking up their life. But and, and that's that's I think what I that that's my personal belief is is the area we should be focusing on. But I think what would get kids in more trouble is going and experimenting with their friends, which I I, I don't think we can stop, and I don't even think we should stop. Um, but then them getting arrested by the police for having this this plant in their pocket, which is going to give them a high for a few hours. They're going to have a good night's sleep, and they're going to wake up the next day ready to go. Yeah, this generation, and by this generation I mean anybody younger than me, which is just about everybody, has lost the uh, understanding of the value of deterrence, because there is no deterrence anymore. Uh, some guy was on the radio the other day, he beat up a copper, bit him, punched him out, and he got a community service order or something. Mm. There's no deterrence. Until people realise that there's a price to pay for your actions, then they won't learn. That's how life is. You know, Darwin Awards, classic. But society seems intent on not making people held to account. Uh, no, kids should not be smoking this stuff. This stuff is not good. And I'm, I'm, I just can't wait for the stats to come out of the US about the legalised marijuana and, and, and the great victory for liberty that it is. Mm. And it is, it's a great victory for liberty. It's no way to build a nation though. It's not. And my perspective is national. My perspective is state and then local and then family. Mm. Well, I mean, there would have been a lot of people smoking dope during the hippie movement of like the 1960s in America. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a new thing. In fact, <clears throat> the statistics are saying that the average age of marijuana smokers are growing older, right? It's um, from 29 to, to 34. Um, and and I, think, I think that a lot of people, I think people should be trusted to... Um, to, to be able to, if they want to pursue that, right, mm. uh, to, to go and do it without without the threat of the government, you know, there to, to go to go and put them put them in jail. Because I mean, let's take that of what's good. Like, I guess there's always a line, and there's always a discussion. There's always like a grey area and middle ground. But when the government is is solely looking for a utilitarian approach to how to build a good country, yeah, that's pretty dangerous, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that like, there's a lot of things we would be better off not doing but we should just let people do it anyway like like alcohol is like much more personally dangerous and also much more dangerous to communities mm. right the alcohol fuel drive uh, violence like drunk driving um like can you like <clears throat> i'm not going to ask you about well let's say the kids in general right mm. i would be assuming i have the same mind at 30 that i do at uh, 21 which may or may not be um I'd be much more comfortable if my kid comes and says to me, hey, I've got a choice between going out with the boys to the pubs and smashing 10, 12 beers mm. or stay home and smoke some joints and watch a movie. I think it's much healthier and safer for them to stay home and, and smoke some dope. Um, yeah, I prefer my son to come to me and say, uh, I'm going out for a couple of beers, Dad, and I know that he knows that two and three is enough and let it go at that. Mm. That's, and this is the point I'm trying to get to. We as individuals need to know what, what's right and wrong. And we have to pass that on to the next generation, what's right and wrong. And mm. what's right and wrong in a small are right and wrong, okay? What mm. works best? What's best for you? Is it best to go have 12, 12 beers? It's insane. Mm. Sure. It's, it's stupid. Similarly, so is the other stuff. It's my point. It's not which of these two bad things is worse. I'm just saying if you've got a, a, a society that knows what's best, then yeah. it won't go down that way. But once again, if you let the marijuana in, then the same argument applies to ice, and the same argument applies to, and applies to, and applies to, and all of a sudden you got the whole country spaced out on mm. dope mm. of some description. Mm. We've so lost this this generation. In fact, you can probably go back maybe two, have lost the idea of what is moral, and again, mm. small m moral, what's mm. best. 
what's right and wrong, what, what, what endures for the future, what contributes to a good future. Mm. Can't tell anymore. And mm. I can give you example after example. Okay, a really crass example that you think won't have an equivalency, but it is. We have so lost our ability to pick right from wrong, or good from bad, or better from worse. We have women in this country who've been taught that they can teach their, they can treat their babies when they're pregnant like medical waste, up until including the moment of birth. Mm. Now, a country that can't see the wrongness in that, and as I think, full term abortion, it's legal in Tasmania, Victoria, Queensland, and they want you know, Penny Wong and Tammy Plibersek and Emily's list from Labor want it to be nationwide. People have lost the ability to pick right from wrong. That's the problem we're facing right now. And mm. in a libertarian society, it'd be great if we knew what pe people knew that. And they, and they mm. didn't then say when they cocked up, can you please look after me? No, if you want to take responsibility and it's on you, then okay, I get that, but that's not how it works. Mm. But, um, okay, okay, I, look, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I think people would usually be better off without a marijuana habit, right? I think, or almost always. But, that's all I'm saying. But, but what I'm saying is that there's a lot of people that get arrested. Is that a necessary price to pay for having, um, like, for not having those other drugs become more normalised than they than they are? I'm not saying it is or it isn't. I don't know. I'd have to look at that. Is there a better way to solve the problem than you know? I've got a joint. You spend ten years in jail. I know that's not the example mm. you get, but I'm taking it to extreme to show mm. to support your point that there can be silliness in application of the law. I'm not sure what the detail is on that. So I don't know. Mm. Um, is there a better way to do business? Possibly, mm. but once again, mm. it's not top of my mind. It's, mm. it's, it's an issue that's there. I guess I've got other yeah. things I need to think about. I've only got 24 hours in the day yeah. like everybody else. Okay, well, I'd like to finish up and take this to a deeper, more philosophical point. You said a lot of people, this generation in particular, um, has lost the ability to, to see right and wrong. Mm. Now, um, <clears throat> listening to what you've said about the government uh, at this point, you would probably also think the government might have lost its ability to judge right and wrong. Well, what, who, sets, who should be setting the benchmark for right and wrong? Because in my mind, or in the libertarian's mind, it should be individual people, right? Um, and when the government does the drug thing, that they're then taking that morality and, and putting a stand on it, right? Um, but would you be looking to the government as... Uh, should the government be playing that active role of moral arbiter, or do you think, or, or what do you think? Um, yeah, no, the government as moral arbiter is, is probably the worst of all possible outcomes. No, I don't trust the government much at all, least of all to be the moral arbiter. Mm. So it's not a moral issue, it's just this is, um, and, and your point is well, well made, it really is so well done. But it's not about it being the moral arbiter, saying the cost to the community is, is greater than we should be expected to pay. Mm. So in that sense, no, the government shouldn't be the moral arbiter. All authority comes from the individual. But the individual needs to be informed and educated as to what the consequences are. And I don't think it has been. I think it's been lied to, it's been deceived, information has been omitted, so it is incapable of understanding what's going on. Mm. They've been intentionally lied to because there have been forces that have been wanting to undermine all that has made Western democracy strong and good. And it's been undermined for 50, 60, 70 years now, to the point where, as I say, People don't know anymore. They think that what's around them today is normal. It's not normal. It's not natural. It's not desirable. It is. But if they if they had access to the information that you know people like you and me have because we investigate this stuff to great to a great degree, they'd be horrified. 
but they don't. They switch on the news, there's a story about a politician, there's a story about uh, something at a work site, and then the, the last news story is the cat was rescued from the tree and they go to bed happy thinking the world is good. Mm. But they don't get the news, they get nothing like the news. And, and Trump's a perfect example. If you ask anybody, you know, I got asked this morning, um, do you think Trump will, will run in 20, in 20, was it 2020? 2022? Mm. Yeah, 2020, job. 2020. Well, he run in 2020. I said he won't even. We've got the facts, man. Yeah, he won't even. He won't even run. He's going to win in a landslide. And and this person looked at me shocked and horrified, and I said, lowest Hispanic unemployment, lowest black unemployment, lowest food stamps, highest increase in new businesses started. Hot and away we went. Mm. And popularity well above 50 percent. Well above 50 percent. 54 percent. There you go. 54 percent. Perfect. Now, you According to Donald, it would be 75 without the fake Russia <laughs> investigation. So there you go. So if you told those numbers to Australia, they'd be shocked because they listen to the ABC and the commercial networks. Now, the commercial mm. networks, news services, they're not news services. Their job is to sell ad space. So they put up stuff that they know people want to watch. And it's a bit like, you know, a reality show. Shocking stories that will attract a bit of attention. So I don't expect... Neighbour from hell. I don't expect, you know, uh, channels 10, 9 and 7... Not that I watch them. I don't expect them to, to give me news. So mm. I don't. ABC is different though. We pay for that and they give us nothing, nothing but propaganda. So there's a problem there. Um, no, the, um, if the people had access to information and knew what was going on, they would make very different decisions. But they have been systematically lied to for so long now that they're making the best decisions they can with the information available to them. Because they're busy. They're working. You know, they trust people to do the right job. Well, they're not. But they would, if the truth was out, they would swing around. Because people are generally, and this is true of Liberal and Labor, they are, most of them are small c conservative. Is they know what works and what doesn't work. But they've been, they've been dragged away from where they comfortably sit by um, agendas that are destructive to Australia and our natural, na- uh, national interests. Mm. Okay, fantastic. I think, uh, I think that was good. Oh, just actually, just on that one yeah. point. Let us know. Okay, we've got something exciting here for you. Well, get your get your tinfoil hats on, because we should do a conspiracy theory episode one day. Because what's funny is a lot of the conspiracy theories actually true, but they get dismissed. Now, I got to read this one to you because I want you to get the words right. You've heard of the the new world order and um, and how uh, we're being controlled by powerful overseas interest, and you know, if you. If the tinfoil hat is just right, not too tight, you would believe it. Well, here's a document that was sent to me by a, uh, a colleague, a contact. And it's the um, report by the Senate Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence. That's it right there. And it was published in 1980. And the title of this document, Australian Government, Parliament of Australia, The New International Economic Order. Implications for Australia. So there's the new New World Order blueprint, and the committee analysed the implications for Australia. That is the New World Order. So, folks, you know what? There is a conspiracy out there, and it's not a conspiracy if it's real. Mm. So there you go. So if you're interested, we might uh, have a look at that. Look, I thought abs- I might leave that with you. Absolutely. That's not a cliffhanger. I don't know what is. Uh, we've got sticky notes all up in there. We're going to be analysing it, and we'll bring it to you on the next episode. Thanks for uh, thanks for sticking with us. Where can people find you? Lastly, it'll be in the description as well. But 
Uh, like what's social media, where should people follow you, get in contact with you? Uh, Ricardo Bosi, I'm on Facebook. I've also got a YouTube channel, Ricardo Bosi. There's not a lot up there, but we're slowly, uh, we're slowly populating the both sites. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, everything will be in the description, so check that out. Check out uh, Ricardo's book as well. Um, good read, link to that will be in the description. See you next time, hopefully, for a big episode on Deep State.